Do you have a little broken toy piano we could play? That's that's the uh serial theme song. It doesn't really doesn't really sound like it. Well okay. That's uh then we won't get in trouble for a copyright violation. Hello, Alaska. I'm Matt Buxton. And I'm Pat Race. And this is a podcast about Alaska. In today's episode, we're going back up to Fairbanks, where we'll begin to tell a story about a brutal murder, a community divided, and justice undelivered. Yes, we're talking about the case that's commonly known as the Fairbanks Four. Four men, three who are Alaska Native, that were convicted of fatally beating a Fairbanks teenager named John Hartman on a downtown street on the night of October 10th, 1997. But first, Pat, I need to ask you a question. How do you feel about spoilers? Like, about this case or about Star Wars? Um, well, I mean, both. Uh, I was, did, did, you, did you enjoy the movie? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did. I mean, I don't, right. I don't feel like we should say more than that. No, no. Okay. Um, okay. So, uh, about but, this but case. No, yeah, about this case, how do I feel about spoilers? Um, I, uh, I, I already know some things. Like, I, I don't know if you yeah, call it a conclusion. it's been in the conclusion. news a lot lately. I think maybe I know how it ends. Okay, yeah, I think maybe most people know how it ends. Yeah. So the latest twist, obviously, is that um, the state finally just kind of gave up its defense of the earlier convictions. They agreed that uh, basically if they retried this case today, that they wouldn't be able to do it. Right, so yeah, you just ruined the ending for me. Well, I hope you can still enjoy the journey along the way. But first, news of the day? The first news of the day. All right. What's going on? I heard uh, you got bought up. Yeah. So the <laughs> right? news, miner, news miner has new owners. Yeah. That's a big surprise. The Fairbanks Daily News Miner, um, it's, uh, it's still locally owned then? Or what's the what do we, what do we know about it? So um, the news miner uh, it was founded in 1903. Uh, so uh, it was owned by the, uh, the Snedden family. It's a local family from about 1950 to, I want to say, the early 90s. Okay. Um, and they sold it to another family trust um, that was out of state, and uh, that family's just getting older. They're not just interested in owning newspapers anymore. And uh, I think anyone is as interested in owning newspapers anymore. (laughs) So anyways, uh, the Snen family left a a trust, um, a foundation, I guess, uh, that is sort of aimed at at improving the community of Fairbanks. And so that was where we went back to. Uh, That foundation um, purchased us. And now the Newsminer is a nonprofit. Wow, that's that's interesting. So so that means you don't get paid anymore, right? (laughs) <laughs> you, um, i mean that you make all the jokes i mean yeah, yeah i mean i guess you always make jokes that newspapers are always non-profit oh is but, that, that was the joke i was supposed to make dang it no, it's okay. um no that's really interesting I, I actually love the idea of of news as non-profit like here in here in juno we have uh ktoo and they've been doing really great reporting um like on community stuff and on state issues and uh it's they're a nonprofit organization and they're really community directed and we we get a lot back in terms of what we put into it. You know, I think you know nonprofit in, in, in public radio has kind of been you know it's a well tread, um, kind of understood idea and you know a lot of radio, almost all news radio, um, is, is nonprofit like that. Um, 
or it's public like that. And so the but newspaper business, from what I can tell, the, any pub, there's no real other publications that have a print product like we do that is also nonprofit. There are a few um, websites in the lower 48 that are online only that are nonprofit and have been doing good work. You know, like ProPublica is one of them. There's, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, the Voice of San Diego. There's a couple others. Um, so this is really kind of untread territory. And uh, yeah, I think it's it, there's a little bit of a convergence. I feel like the um, the public radio model is actually converging with the with the print model as everyone kind of moves online. And so they're all sort of beginning to deliver the same kind of content. And so these all these organizations are actually becoming kind of a, a new, a, they're creating a new model that's like a nexus between the two. Yeah, and it's going to be um, exciting. I think, you know, one of the things that w- they talked about yesterday uh, when, when they when they put it together is that the, new, the, the um, nonprofit mission of education, of kind of community service is going to, um, I think, be kind of becoming in- increased. And so, that's going to translate to you know a lot more internships um for especially for local people oh wow um trying to kind of foster the the community a little bit like that yeah Um, as well as kind of you know going back to the core duties of what journalism is which is I, i always kind of felt like is kind of at odds with um the 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 profit motive of of papers yeah, definitely. And there's always been that, I don't know what you call that wall between editorial and advertising, but that's always been a struggle that I've seen with newspapers is when they start selling their voice and, and, uh, and yeah, there's, when you get cross-contamination between the, the articles you're printing and the advertising dollars that are coming in. So yeah, finding out that we were bought by a, um, uh, a nonprofit was really interesting because, you know, some of the rumors that are floating around where there were, um, private buyers out there and private buyers come with who are who private buyers who aren't really in the business of newspapers kind of come with some they've got baggage yeah they've got like a message that they're trying to like oh let's buy a newspaper so we can change the world into what we want it to be yeah and so you look at you know the most recent and really high profile case is the las vegas uh review journal uh which was bought by a uh like an unknown company. Like they didn't know who really owned them. It was just like an LLC. Yeah. And it turned out that it ended up being um, Republican mega donor Sheldon Adelson. Oh yeah. And there's already kind of some kind of bizarre questions about um, the editorial control that he's exerting or not exerting. And so, yeah, I mean the idea that you might be owned by somebody who doesn't like what you are doing, especially if it is political in nature is just worrisome but that's like but so anyways, that's that's yeah. like the great history of newspapers though is like you know never get in an argument with anyone that buys ink by the barrel and the william randolph hearst and i mean like you if you want to go to war in politics you buy a newspaper right isn't that the yeah. <laughs> that's the and, way Ameri- to... <laughs> and america is so great for it too, yeah you know i mean <laughs> the national is geographic a... is the one that jumps to mind here national geographic got b- bought mm-hmm. by rupert murdoch and like like what an unlikely pair those <laughs> those two yeah. are yeah so yeah, so I think uh, it'll, it'll be interesting. I think the way I always look at these sort of things is that it'll be interesting and it'll be a good learning opportunity. And I think um, right now everyone here is really uh, enthusiastic about the purchase. I know at least I am. Yeah. Okay. Well, what else is going on in the news? Uh, for me, all I'm seeing is editorials on the governor's fiscal plan. <laughs> but uh, I'm sure there are other things that are happening. Those are the yeah. only ones that are jumping out at me right now. That, that, yeah, I mean, the the fiscal crisis is obviously going to be 
a, a big issue that we'll be talking about pretty soon. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's interesting to see. Um, you know, I think when the plan was released, I think there was kind of like a general feeling of support. But as soon as people are beginning to unpack the whole thing, um, just like the governor said, everyone's finding something that they don't like with it. Yeah. There's the, the devils are in the details. Exactly. <laughs> All right. and, and editorial pages. Yeah. Well, okay. So let's, uh, I mean, we're, we won't get into that right now, but let's jump, let's jump into this story here. Um, tell me about the Hartman murder. Tell me about the Fairbanks four. Um, we're going to go back in time a little bit here and, and, um, kind of set the scene and go through the events that happened that night. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so just a quick disclaimer, um, this episode, we will be talking about a murder, um, a little bit about the nature of the attack and the final moments of this young man's life um, on a corner, you know, on a downtown street in Fairbanks. Um, this is not a happy case, um, you know, and, and it's important to remember as we talk about this that, you know, we're, we're really focusing on the four men who um, were convicted of this crime, uh, but it is not at all, you know, a disrespect to uh the individual you know there's still a murder that happened here and there's still really questions about who uh killed him and those really remain unanswered and it's really kind of the unfortunate um piece of this whole story so let's take you back to fairbanks in 1997 i had planned a little bit here but um and and it turns out that uh you might have been here yeah i i actually wasn't in fairbanks in 97 i was going to school up there and I mean, I, I was so insulated up on the campus that I, I probably heard about this, but it probably just didn't seem like that big of a deal at the time. It was probably a thing that was shocking in the news for a little bit, and then I was back to classes. 3 a.m. on uh, Sunday, uh, October 11, 1997, uh, a driver by spotted a young man um, crumpled over on the corner of 9th and Barnett. Um, it's a downtown street. Uh, it's about a couple blocks from like the really core downtown area. Okay, I'm I'm looking it up on Google Maps here. Ninth and Barnett, tenth, ninth, Barnett, Barnett Magnet School, Airport Way. Okay. Oh, okay. Barnett's that one that intersects with Airport Way, and it goes. It takes it's that little windy one that takes you downtown. Um, ninth is just like on the outskirts of downtown. You're not quite to downtown yet. It's, it's the street that city hall is on. It's actually like, you're, you're talking about a block from city hall. This happened. Yeah. And, and yeah, yeah. And the police station too. Oh, wow. Yeah, basically okay. right behind the police station. Yeah. So, um, people came across him. They kind of initially thought that he was, uh, maybe a drunk or something like that passed out. Uh, but it really turned out that he'd been really pretty savagely attacked. Uh, he was still breathing at the time, um, but in a coma. Uh, he had been beaten, and, and it appeared that he had been stomped on the head, um, which is, in a lot of the, the, the sort of talks I've seen since then, it, it's a particularly brutal attack. Um, you know, you really don't see this kind of... Um, like physical assault? Yeah, especially because, so... Um, was, was he still alive at this time when they found him? 
Yes, he was, yeah. Okay. So you really don't see, I mean, especially, like, a lot of the kind of attacks that were going on in Fairbanks were, um, there were, were assaults, you know, people were strong-arm robberies, that kind of thing, where you might get beat up, but your wallet was taken. They're not out to kill somebody. And it seems like the kind of attack that happened to him was had the intention of killing. You know, there was... Um, it was more antagonistic. Yeah, the police argue that there were boot prints on his head, and, and um, it was just... Uh, it was yeah it was a totally uh kind of shocking level of uh violence that the community felt um and so you see in some of the later responses you know people saying stuff like you know how could this happen in our community our community is so nice we're the golden heart city but pat like what was your sort of impression i i would like to get yeah your sense of was fairbanks a super safe place at, at that time I, I never felt like I was in danger, but I was also, like I said, I was up on campus most of the time. And mm -hmm. it wasn't it wasn't a real, like, clean and easygoing place. It wasn't like Shangri-La, but it was, um, you know, you, you, and usually you travel around with, like, groups of friends and things like that. I, I didn't feel like, uh, I didn't feel like it was dangerous. I felt like most of the violence was actually coming out of, like, the bars. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, there were, there's definitely a lot, a, a long history of like alcohol and drug abuse and, and just depression um, in that area. And you see it uh, kind of like, I mean, <laughs> you just see it in people's eyes sometimes where you're like, okay, this guy's trouble. Let's stay away. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it wasn't like, I didn't feel like I was going to get beat up at every moment of every day, but there was definitely opportunities for violence. And I don't think that, um, you know, it's not surprising to me that they're that violence was happening in Fairbanks. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, so I, as a reporter, I've been covering this case, and I've been doing a lot more of the more recent sort of things. So a lot of um, what I know about the case, uh, as far as the sort of specifics of it, go back to a lot of original reporting that the news miner did. Yeah, um, what one were of people those, saying at the time? Yeah, so there was um, it's called a series called Decade in Doubt that came out in about 2008, about you know the 10-year anniversary of uh, Hartman's death. Um, so one of the police reports, you know, shows there was on that night there were robberies, assaults, DWIs, disturbing the peace, and kind of importantly, and it, it was actually mentioned in the story, but it, the significance of it doesn't come out until quite a bit later, and we'll be talking about that in a bit, but there was also a report of uh, three young black men assaulting uh, another man. It looks like a, a robbery, and that's going to become important a little bit later. Um so there were other things like in the police blotter that night. It's not like this was just the the one incident that happened on in downtown Fairbanks. Yeah, I mean they're telling the story where, uh, you know, the, the the shift supervisors were trying to call in more cops because they just couldn't handle this night. And this was the night right around the time um, when PFDs came out. And they're one of the story describes this process of um, rolling. I think is what it's called, and it's. Uh, it's a, a strong arm robbery uh, of people's wallets at right after right around dividend time. Oh wow, is that something that still happens? Like people, you get your dividends, you're cash heavy, and then you people beat you up and take your wallet. I think there's a lot more. I think direct deposit took a lot of care of a lot of that. Jeez, yeah. Uh, but yeah, you don't. Yeah, I don't think you hear about it as much anymore. But yeah, I mean that was a. I mean people were going out to the bars with a wad of cash in their pocket and uh, made it easy targets. I think. Yeah, definitely. I can see that. So. So even though Fairbanks is a really rough and tumble town, um, you know, as soon as uh, John Hartman was in the hospital where he was dying, um, the police were out, you know, kind of piecing together the, the, the elements of last night, thinking about kind of who they ran into and, and who was suspicious at the time. 
So who are the Fairbanks Four? So the Fairbanks Four, there, there are four men, um, ages 17 to 19. There's uh, Marvin Roberts, George Freese, Kevin Peace, and Eugene Vent. So yeah, so Eugene Vent had been at a hotel where there was a food fight had taken place, and uh, and, and the clerk basically there. Um, when you say said, food fight, do you mean like Nickelodeon, haha, we're having some fun, or is this like guys fighting in mashed potatoes up to their chest? It's a little bit of both, I think. It, so it if it basically it totally depends on who you ask now. So you talk to the state prosecution who feels that the convictions were rightfully attained. They talk about the possibility there was a gun there. They talk about all this sort of stuff. Um, although there was never really evidence of a gun, the and and the security tape so that it was never a gun. But then, then the the defense will kind of cast it more as a sort of playful food fight that maybe their guys were even maybe the Fairbanks four were never even at. Okay. Um, so so they pick him up. He he's really intoxicated. There's a it's a wedding night. Uh, there's a, there's a wedding reception in town. Um, kids are getting a hold of alcohol and drinking. And and so uh, Vent was was uh, subjected to I think it's eleven hours of interrogations um, after he's picked up. Um, within that first twenty four hours, he's in prison and wow. he is still intoxicated. And this is kind of where the problems begin so um so they interrogated him while he's while he was sobering up and going through the process of like having a hangover and all that yeah he had about i think uh 0.16 which is i think double you know the legal limit to drive yeah during the first interrogation yeah okay but a lot of people can function pretty pretty well if they if they drink a lot that's not you know that's not going to impair them that much it's hard to say. The, where, where this becomes a problem, though, is the police are attempting to get, you know, important information out of, out of him. And um, and so the question is, you know, uh, you know, nobody ultimately, you know, whether how you however you feel about police, ultimately, they don't want to get the wrong guy. Like they do want to pull the murderers off the street. Right. Um, but when you're so when you're talking to a young man who is intoxicated, um, you know, is he going to give you the right information so right are so you during, hearing what you want to hear or or he's is he telling you what he wants to hear what you want to hear so that he can go home you know that kind of thing yeah and so the really kind of interesting thing that that i found from this is that during police interrogations in the united states they don't have to tell you the truth oh okay so like <laughs> they can just <laughs> uh how does that f- how, how is that helpful to them so it's this it's this um, kind of old school technique of kind of handling combative witnesses, where you tell them you act like you know uh, that they're guilty, and you give them information that would suggest that you know they're guilty, and uh, and then it, then you get a confession. So, so give, the give me an example. In this case, what did they say to this guy? That they that... said we found a boot print, a bloody boot print on the scene that matches your boot print. Oh and wow. The uh, and so um, Vent replies by by saying, "Oh, I might have walked by there, you know." And then he goes to brush um, right, his shoe. He's, so he's trying to like figure out, well, why would the, my boot print be there? Yeah, yeah. And and so this is this becomes kind of the, the confession. This is this is like this is the first seed of really what be, what 
the state and prosecutors hold up as a, as a confession that look here he said he did it and you know the the investigator um, even said that oh he he went to wipe his boot as if he had blood on his boot and the problem with it was that the type of injuries that John Hartman had sustained didn't produce the kind of injuries that would leave blood on anything it he was mostly battered it was internal injuries there was a small pool of blood that leaked out from internal bleeding Mm-hmm. And so there was no blood, and um, and, and and so then the the conversation continues. Um, they say, "Okay, we've already got you. You need, you know, you need to really help yourself here. You know, if you can just tell us what we did, maybe it works out better for you." And so it becomes this confession that you know he feels. You know, if you look at a lot of the transcripts, it's saying he's saying stuff like, "Well, I didn't, I didn't do that. You got the wrong guy." But then it's it's this it's sort of these pieces that are pulled out through through line and kind of some creative thinking that um, at least that what they argue is uh, is become a, a false confession. So we've got Eugene Vent and he's in the in the Huskow and they're interrogating him. Mm-hmm. And, and so they end up I think bringing forward a picture of the basketball team that they these the four had all played on and said, oh look, you know you're standing right next to Marvin Roberts, you know, aren't you guys friends? And so it's kind of through, it's it's always been unclear as how the police kind of put these four guys together, but um, they were all kind of in the neighborhood and they sort of rounded them up. Is that yeah, what happened? That's kind of how yeah. And so um, so uh, um, Kevin Pease, he's um, an American part part American uh, Indian, and so he's not Alaska Native, um, but he uh, see he had a, um, a pretty lengthy rap sheet before he had kind of some like documented anger issues um his mom uh called the police around 3 a.m to say her son had assaulted her and so they had had an argument and that's where he becomes a suspect is simply he had an argument with his mom so therefore he may have killed this teenager about two hours before okay so you've talked about eugene vent he got picked up for the boot um and kevin peace got in an argument with his mom so uh, tell me about the other two guys. How did they get roped into this? Yeah, and so George Fries and uh, George Fries uh, was kind of he was a drug dealer at the time. Um, he wasn't like quote unquote like necessarily a, a good guy, uh, or you know no no angel I guess would be the, the terrible uh, <laughs> uh, lead you'd, or intro you'd write to a story about him. But so basically he. Um, was heavily drunk that night too. Is like most of the rest of them had kind of blackouts throughout the night. But so he had hurt his foot at some point during the night, and he so in the morning he wakes up on Saturday. His foot hurts. Um, he goes over to Fairbanks Memorial Hospital because he thinks he broke it, and they go. Um, a nurse recognizes the injury. I think he might have mentioned that. Oh, I might have gotten a fight, which she says he was trying to be tough in. And they go and they look at the look at his hurt foot, and they look at the young man um, a few floors up who's in the ICU. And they say, it looks like we got our guy. Oh, wow. Yeah. So uh, did he have an explanation for that? Or, I mean, he That's doesn't just, He doesn't even does, know. Like, he, he yeah. blacked out? Yeah, and so he, he, his story in court now is that he was trying to be helpful. You know, he, he didn't know what happened, and he was trying to tell them as much as he was trying to be. He, you know, he realized that someone was really hurt, and he was trying to tell them, you know, um, I might have gotten a fight last night. You know, I don't really know, but and so, um, 
in in kind of the uh, as this case is played out, it looks like you know there, he didn't leave his home until about half an hour after John Hartman had been attacked that night. Um, but whether or not that's true or believable is you know the the state obviously didn't find um, his alibi particularly credible, which was I think he he was at a party and he looked at the clock as he was walking out and it was unusual because no one had clocks on their walls. I think so. His, so he remembered what time it was that he left the house, but he doesn't remember kicking a guy to death. Is is kind yeah. of the the shaky part of that? Yeah. So I mean, he he remembered I think trying to go into sneak into a bar. He was. Uh, I think 19, um, he's trying to remember, or maybe he was 17. Um, he, he tried to sneak into a bar, got kicked out and then tried to sneak back into it. He remembers seeing a few other people, remember getting a ride and remember limping home. And that was about it. All right. So Eugene Vent is the boot guy. Mm -hmm. He's got the bloody boot. Kevin Peace is, uh, he was the fight with his mom. George Freese is the guy that didn't know quite what happened mm -hmm. the night before, went to the hospital with a hurt foot. And and the last one is Marvin Roberts. And Marvin Roberts is kind of, um, he, you know, whereas the other guys kind of had sort of questionable sort of records or, you know, they, they kind of had sort of disciplinary issues in their past. Marvin Roberts um, was really considered by many as kind of a good kid. Um, he was from... Uh, Tanana, and he actually was attending this wedding reception that night, and basically all uh, all of the wedding guests seemed to remember that he was there for most of the night, especially at the times where uh, the assault was happening. And um, it's interesting because in in the some of the police reporting, they can't really remember why Marvin Roberts was ever a suspect in the first place. Wow. So he just got sucked into this vortex and somehow lumped in with these other kids. Yeah. Well, did, he, they, did they ever mention his name when they were being interrogated? Um, I don't believe so. I think um, just how he came up as a suspect has always been really unclear. They talked to him, I believe, on Saturday, um, and then they came and picked him up the next day. All right. So, um, so maybe he was just in the wrong basketball photo or something? Yeah, pretty much. So okay, um, and he was the one with a car too, and so th this whole sort of theory revolves around, um, you know, them kind of all meeting up from different places. So, so, so here's kind of where we get into this thing where there's, um, all these men kind of have alibis of various kind of different um, merit and strength, and all of them really put them at different places at, at the time the murder attack. Uh, occurred and that was around 1 a.m that morning 1 30 i think do they and have so, a pretty good idea of when the the attack happened or like how big is that window so they they believe i think it's always kind of been around 1 1 30 there's actually um it's it's actually whenever david bowie was playing um on conan o'brien's late show that night and Wait, what <laughs> yeah so this is kind of the unfortunate sort of Kind of, so, you know, there, there's there. It's the bystander effect here. So this, what happened was there. This attack happened right next to um, what is now the Interior Center for Nonviolent Living. It's a women's shelter. Okay. And uh, a woman was staying there. Uh, she was watching Conan O'Brien that night. She was um, 
David Bowie came on. She said, I don't really like him. So she stepped out onto um, the porch and she was, I think, smoking a cigarette or just kind of enjoying the, the cold air. And she actually heard an attack going on. And it was, I think, right around 1, 1.30. And um, she described it as bad, bad smacks. You know, the sound of somebody really getting hurt. And she heard a young voice calling, help me, help me. And she later described what she heard as uh, older, intoxicated, and native accents. And kind Multiple of her ability voices. to actually... Yeah, voices. And yeah. They, they, she never said that she heard any them say any words. It was just sounds. And so her ability to... And this is this becomes one of the key pieces of evidence now. Yeah. Um, and we could you could do a whole episode talking about, you know, the memory and, and identification. And those are, are kind of huge issues to the innocence case. But... Um, so did uh, she come in, like, that night and say, like, hey, I heard this thing? Or did she call 911? Or what, what happened? Nothing happened. She didn't call 911, no. Um, she talked to one of the shelter employees who said it was up to her. I guess he didn't hear anything. And she said she, as being a victim of domestic abuse, said, I didn't want to, didn't want to get involved in the cops, so she didn't call. Yeah, she said, s- but this shelter I, I employee somebody else can, will do it. This shelter employee verified that this happened that evening, right? Like, yeah. there's, she wasn't, like, the kind of person who made something up later on to be a part no. of the story or whatever. No, no. Yeah. Okay. So does that timing line up with, uh, like, the medical timing of the... I mean, can you tell what time he was he was punched or injured or, like, based on the bruising or... Uh, there's, like, kind of, like, sort of, sort of macabre equations you can do uh, about, the, like, the temperature of the body and how long it's been deceased. Um, obviously, that's not the case here. But I think there was some kind of feelings about the amount of swelling that had occurred, that kind of thing. To yeah. that, that all kind of lined up to put it around uh, one thirty. Okay, so how do these kids' alibis line up with that timing? So that so that this is where we get into kind of the real, some of the real problems with this case, and some of the real issues that have I think kept their claims of innocence alive for eighteen years, and that's almost all their alibis um, conflicted with this time. So, Peace and Vent were at a party on China Ridge. Um, if you put the time they were leaving the part, they, I don't think even had left the party until, um, they, uh, until after the attack happened. And so that's a 30 minute drive away from town over to them. Marvin Roberts, he was at uh, a wedding reception. He'd been going in and out a little bit. Um, but people pretty much put him there all the time too. There's not really a whole lot of time for him to meet up with everybody else. Um, I think there's about a 20 minute window is essentially what's happened. So it's like he needs to meet up with all these other guys, go over, commit a murder, and then come back to the party right away. Um, but so the real problem, so the real kind of issue here, and it kind of sees, plays out over the next few years as this case was being um, prosecuted and going through the media and everything, is that there's this kind of sense of racism against Alaska Natives, this feeling that they'll cover for each other, that they'll lie to police that they're not to be trusted so kind of these alibis sort of across the board were sort of dismissed as attempts to cover for them so you think oh wow so um so the 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 police perception of any of these alibis is that they don't really count because they're Mm -hmm. just sort of made up ways to get out of trouble yeah and so and kind of some of the more recent stuff you know i think 
um, a few of the members, when they were in custody, did call uh, around. And I think all they said, though, is tell the truth. Yeah. And and they were calling around some of their, some of their friends. But, you know, these were young um, teenagers, mostly Alaska Native, who were trying to vouch for them. And they were vouching kind of with vague times. You know, they didn't have cell phones. They didn't have Instagram. They did have a lot of pagers. Um, so there's, there's the whole story does include this whole story of the night, like, is, is very... It's sort of a, it's a total kind of t- transportation back in time when everyone was using pagers to get a hold of each other, but yeah, yeah I mean there so there's people remembering kind of around what times things were happening. Well, I, I needed to call them at this time to get a pickup, um, that kind of thing. So did um, it rely on like telephone records too? Like no, that sure. was never mentioned. No, there was never. I don't know why um, the, the 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 pager records didn't seem to. Um, feature very heavily in any of these cases it seems like that would be a, a big part of it because you're you know it, you can verify if they made that phone call or not mm. so so what was the community's perception of all of this so and, th- and this is kind of um telling i think of fairbanks being a really different place um it was really divided you know there um there were people who you know said how dare this happen in our community these men are monsters um you know string them up basically and there were other people that were saying, hey, whatever happened to the due process, you know, or, and, and, you know, the media coverage, I think, played a big role in, the, in sort of forming the, the narrative of this case. And we can look at that now. I mean, we have these archives of, of what people wrote. Why don't we just go look yeah. at them and get a I, I, let's let's do that right now. Let's see what the what is the what are people saying in 1997 about this case? So so you have like very tough opinions against them. So one of them, one person writes, as for Hartman's assailants, I say, let the punishment fit the crime. This incident represents a good argument for the death penalty. Um, you know, another person wrote, whatever happened to innocent until proven guilty. Um, you know, and, and, and some of the, the, you know, so, and so one of their, their first appearance in court was as, as was kind of this infamous picture of them in a chain gang, you know, and you look at the picture now and they are clearly kind of young men who um, are all in orange, bright orange jumpsuits chained together. And that was kind of blame, you know, that appearance was, is, was later criticized as, you know, kind of setting the stage for people to distrust and not to empathize with them at all. Do you, do you think that their case became like a symbol of the violence that Fairbanks was experiencing at the time and that by really cracking down on on this one case it made an example that you know we we don't want this kind of violence in Fairbanks or or what was the Yeah, I think so. I think yeah. I, mean, I think there were there there was this kind of community response that was we need to address the violence. We need to take care of our community and you know how dare something like this happen here so there was kind of a a backlash i guess i mean i could see something like that happening today here in juno with this heroin problem we're having like if if they caught someone they would really make a you know make an example out of them if if they caught someone bringing in a whole bunch of heroin Mm -hmm. um and and i don't think that the community the community would push for that to happen and so maybe yeah. in this case, that's what happened. Is like there had been a, a lot of like small simmering, um, violent actions. 
and, then, and, and the other yeah and it also comes to the nexus too of this really is there's a lot of simmering racial tension too yeah um you know and so you know another letter that comes in after uh, i think roberts is the only individual to make bail because his community of tanana was able to raise money for a defense attorney you know they really believed that he you know uh you know kind of the star student at the school couldn't have done it and so you know the response to it was was brutal and it was kind of and you can kind of see um, how the language here sort of tinges, you know, or shows the sort of racial tinge on it. So, you know, someone writes, you know, well, Fairbanks, Alaska looks like open season. We are truly savages now. We can roam the streets raping and beating men, women, girls, boys, doesn't matter. Whichever you prefer is fair game. Wow. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it's a sort of fear, you know, and you, you see it now, you know, especially with, you know, the Muslim community in, in America, you know, this sort of feeling that, you know, there's, there's a fear of a fear of terrorist attacks. Right. And Any one of them could be the one that blows us all up. And that's, yeah. and that was the feeling about Alaska natives at the time in Fairbanks. Yeah, yeah to, a, to a degree. Yeah. yeah. And so someone, another person writes back, you know, fires back at this and says, you know, we aren't some third world country here where you can be locked up on a whim, you know. Um, would you like to know what horrifies me? It's a judgmental way in which my fellow fellow citizens are behaving, and that I think, you know, so this was a real battle of opinion. Yeah, yeah, it was of, it was like totally a battle waged in, in in the in the editorial pages, and it actually resulted in the case being moved down to Anchorage. Just because the community was too invested in it, they couldn't find anyone that was yeah going to be able to detach. Yep, there's yeah. everyone had an a, opinion on the case. Yeah, and. Um, so yeah, I mean, what, what kind of is interesting here is, you know, I think in cases like this where it, it's something is scary, you really do see kind of, um, you know, kind of what a lot of our like founding fathers sort of talked about, which is, you know, the Bill of Rights is there for a reason, you know, and it's kind of to avoid these sort of like knee jerk reactions. And, you know, America is kind of this place where, you know, you're free in kind of a way that a lot of other places aren't. And I always find, you know, situations like this, reading about this case or, or now um, with this kind of racist reaction to uh, people of Islamic faith is that it's kind of like an un-American treatment of it all. So Yeah, absolutely. It's terrifying. I mean, there. you see us. No, I, I'm, yeah. I'm on board with that. Like you, you see us veering away from from the things that make us who we are. Um, and and it, it's terrifying because once you lose your identity, then like, <laughs> who are you as a, exactly. as a country? Yeah. yeah. And so, uh, and I've been listening to the, like the Hamilton soundtrack over and over and over. And I started reading his biography and, and I'm, I'm, I'm deep into all of these ideas right now of, you know, like what were the founding fathers thinking when they put this all together? And, and so to to hear someone like Donald Trump talking about the Muslim community and and how you know we we can't let them into the country it's it's just so um, it's so much the opposite of of who we are and 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 how we were founded like who our country like the identity of our country is is the opposite of that mm-hmm. yeah. and and so talking you know about this case you know I think a lot of people one one thing I was talking with a defense attorney about recently was. Um, you know, thank God we don't have the death penalty here. Yeah. Um, because you right, know, because they would have, they would be all they would have all got killed by now, and and uh-huh. there would not have been an innocence trial. Yeah, and, and and that's sort of the ultimate thing here is you know this 
this question of delivery of justice, you know, is justice fair? How, how does it break down? And these are, you know, issues that we'll be talking about in the next few episodes is, you know, we, we have the system and, but the system is imperfect. You know, it relies, has a heavy reliance, you know, for example, on witness identification. Um, and study after study have shown that it's inaccurate. You can, there's plenty of podcasts you can go listen to that talk about the problems with um, witness identification. And so that's, you know, there's all these sort of things that, um, that broke down along the way. And, you know, it's sort of important to go back to say, you know, we really um, don't know what happened this night. Yeah, I mean, there. I, I understand. There's there. There are these ideas that that memory is fallible and that we can trick ourselves into into believing things. Um, but but still, like this, the system at the base of it makes a lot of sense to me. Is that you're you are an innocent person until you're proven guilty, and that you need to really be proven guilty, not just sort of whimsically decided that you were guilty. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems like in this case, and I guess we'll get into the. I guess we'll get into the actual trial in a in a in a future episode, but the um, in this case it seems like there's really not a lot of evidence that that aligns right now with with their guilt, and so um, you know I don't I don't know what happened in the trial. I'm I'm really excited to hear about it more from you, but I but right now it's confusing to me how this even got that far. Yeah, and I wonder if that happens a lot in in policing, if you just need someone to be guilty so that people can have a conclusion. I mean, yeah. stories need a conclusion. People really crave that. And so maybe these guys are the guys because we need that case to be closed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think and, and um, I think what I, I've kind of heard from a lot of criminal reporters and defense attorneys, too, is that, you know, really about 95 percent of uh, criminal prosecutions are just total slam dunks. You you got the guy dead to rights, no questions asked. Even the defense attorney knows it. Um, but there's this kind of five percent of cases where you know you don't have the right evidence, you don't have this sort of stuff. And so what we see during this trial, or we'll we'll see over this trial over the next few episodes, is um, just how you know the kind of the lengths that they went to 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 firm up the evidence to get these convictions because then at the day i think they really did believe that they had the right people okay <clears throat> okay all right so so next time we'll get into the trial so you know so i work at the news miner and over the last year i've kind of been able to cover this case i i covered um the latest co- i was in the courtroom for most of the of a five-week hearing um it's called a post-conviction relief uh trial uh, where they're trying to prove their innocence and it's kind of the most credible um effort so far um but of course i wasn't here in 1987 so a lot of this material, um, a lot of the, the, the ability to kind of piece together what happened this night is, is all thanks to um, the UAF journalism program where um, a fr- Professor Brian O'Donohue, a former newsman reporter, um, over the last like couple, I guess, last 18 years really has been heavily involved in this case as far as like using it as a teaching method for students. Um, and uh, they've put together a great, um, the Hartman murder files that um, has you know, police interviews, transcripts, um, talking about the, the, the confessions, talking about the trials, and um, talking about the men. And it even has like an interactive timeline of kind of uh, sort of piecing together all these sort of differing accounts as to where um, everyone was at the time. All right. So next episode, we'll talk about, we'll get more into the trial, um, the case that was built against these men, the uh, 
uh, nature of eyewitness testimony, problems with memories and juries and humanity, and uh, we'll learn more about uh, what led to them being found guilty. And uh, um, and we'll we'll do that um, probably in the next week or so. But for now, let's uh, go read some of Cindy's poetry. It is no small thing to see the sunrise each day, the winter solstice. Yeah, all right, we're getting a little more light in our lives, like coming around the corner. It's it's nice to know that we're coming back. (laughs) back And Star Wars is out and it wasn't bad. Star Wars is great. It was so good. Yeah, I was excited about it. It's, It's been tough to... Um, endure the barrage of uh, I feel like it cheapens it that that every ad and that I see everywhere is like for Star Wars water bottles and perfumes and eye makeup and I just can't it's it's too much oh oh I want to buy it all (laughs) (laughs) I I grew up my I grew up when I was a kid um, in uh, elementary school we had these multiplication tables that we did every Wednesday I think and it was like these little cardboard um sheets with little holes in them and you would put a piece of paper in it and you'd write the answer you know to the question and um my dad uh it was like if i for whatever one i if i got right if i got it all right i think he would take me to toys r us this is when i was living in san diego take me to toys r us and he'd buy me one ten dollar star wars action figure wow this is back. I think they were like these micro machines. Yeah, yeah, the so micro they, machines ones were great. I love those. So these little tiny guys, and they were they were beautifully painted. And you get like three in a box. Yeah. Yeah, and so I would get them, and it was like it would usually come with like one ship and like three little guys or two little guys, and oh my god, I had uh, I remember we were we were packing up and we had just this massive box full of them, and they were like, some of my next to Legos. Those were my cher- most cherished uh, childhood toys. Cool. All right. So uh, let's wrap this episode up. What's the What's the good news? We like to end on uh, end on an up oh, note, yeah. even when we deal with hard issues. So what are some of the What are some of the good things that are going on, or interesting people that are doing creative stuff? So yeah. So up in, up in Fairbanks, um, I, I'm super Fairbanks focused lately. Uh, but uh, so there's this uh, place that I I have covered, and I think um, it's just kind of this fantastic. Uh, um, organization, uh, community. It's called Raven Landing. It's this, um, it's really a senior, senior retirement community kind of made and run by seniors. And, um, they're trying to basically finish the final unit of, of this sort of structure. It's, you know, it, it's been helped by the state along the way and all this sort of stuff. And so they're finishing up their final one. And, uh, they recently got some money from the Rasmussen foundation. Um, it's about $125,000, it gets them halfway to their goal of two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and they're trying to raise that last little bit there. But um, one thing I think in Alaska it's going to be super interesting over the next two years is this problem of aging in Alaska and how we're taking care of people and and you know essentially there's really not a whole lot of services for anybody and uh, these people are figuring it out for themselves basically. They looked at it and the need. They said we really don't want to live at the Pioneer home and we really don't want to live at low income but we also don't want to have to like maintain our own homes so they basically built like a little campus for themselves and it's got a kitchen beautiful kitchen and a beautiful performance space and um, it's just it's a real sense of community and they've done such a good job over there cool 
Yeah, so um, my good news is uh, the first Lego League um, has a robotics tournament every every winter, and it just happened recently, and it's just a blast. Uh, Centennial Hall here in Juneau gets packed full of kids. We, we host the Southeast Regional Tournament here. Um, there's other tournaments all over the state, and then, the, and then eventually they get together um, up in Anchorage and uh, have a big state tournament. But the uh, mm-hmm. the regional tournament was just like a riot. We had kids come in from like Metlakatla. They did great. The Metlakatla team did awesome. And we had uh, just from all over Southeast, all these like big schools, little schools, Girl Scout troops. Um, everyone had their own little robot, and they have to solve these um, puzzles. So they have this, they have like basically a big table and the robots are programmed. They have to program the robots to go out and solve these puzzles and come back to the base. And Mm so, and then they get different points based on what they do. And And these are like the Lego Mindstorms, right? Yeah. These are like the little Lego Mindstorms kits and then they can kind of add on whatever they want to it. Um, we had a ton of teams this year. Um, I, I don't know how many, but it felt like, uh, probably in the like 20 to 40 range. And, mm-hmm. and each one of these teams has like five or six kids on it and they're super excited and we're listening to everything is awesome and they're <laughs> running around freaking out like having a party. And the, the, the best thing about it though, I think is that the, uh, the whole event is built on this idea of gracious professionalism. And, and I love that idea that, um, gracious professionalism is, is about, it's, it's about being good at what you do, but not being a dick, <laughs> and, which is what it will, which is exactly what we should be teaching kids is like how to be competitive in like a respectful way in a way mm-hmm. that like kind of makes everyone better and brings everyone up. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just loved it. I loved, uh, I love the Re- Lego robots tournament and I, and I helped them out with the, the filming and I just go climbing the rafters of the okay. Centennial Hall and, and film the film the uh, game board yeah it's super cool like one of the really cool things that i've seen a few of those too and it's just cool because i think you know it's a pretty low barrier of entry too and it is something that can i think really open up kids um ideas of what they can do you know yeah you know they're kind of like mini engineers you know and and a lot of these kids um you know may you know they're they're not the kind of kids who necessarily have the resources to go build like a full-fledged robot you know like there are some classes i've seen that do that but well this is aimed at mostly at like middle school and elementary school and so these these kids um do graduate into more of like a program where they're building things from scratch but this is a really nice way to to not have to learn all the like all the tooling necessarily Mm -hmm. to build uh, necessary to build a robot they're just they're just snapping legos together and it works out really well for them and the best thing about it is that you've got these kids that don't necessarily succeed in a classroom environment but can be really active builders or programmers um outside of that um Mm -hmm. because it's it's an extracurricular activity and you have these kids learning uh, programming and learning engineering and and learning a little bit of like Lego architecture as a extracurricular activity, which is great. I mean, it's they're they're going to school on the weekend and they don't even know it because they're having a blast. <laughs> well, that's the power of Legos. Yes, that is the power of Legos, and yeah. So that's my that's my good news for the for the news. That sounds like pretty good news. Yeah, anything with Legos is good news to me. Uh, yes. <laughs> anything with Legos, anything with Star Wars, Star Wars Legos, we're happy. It's Christmas time. I'm going <laughs> to go open my Star Wars Legos. I know. I, I actually have, uh, right next to me, I have a B-Wing from last year that I haven't built yet. Oh, is that is that an activity that you'll be picking up in the next couple of days here? You have yeah, some downtime? Yeah. I got some downtime, man. Cool. Build some Legos. 
All right. Well, uh, goodbye, Alaska. Uh, happy holidays to everyone. Yep. Happy holidays, everybody. You can find me uh, on Twitter uh, at FDNM Politics. Oh, and I am at Alaska Robotics. And you can find our website at helloalaska.pizza. And you can get a hold of us at heyguys at helloalaska.pizza. All right. Goodbye. All right. Goodbye, everybody. I think that went well. I think, yeah, I think that was pretty good. I feel good. like we, yeah, I think we're getting the hang of this.